And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except for the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him, but Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now, those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Tiffany, thank you. The last two weeks we've had her read over 25 verses, which is extremely abnormal for us. Today we're back to the normal. We're just looking at four today, but that doesn't mean you'll be out in 20 minutes. <laughs> would you bow with me and pray before we get, get going? Father, I ask that you would bless your word as we look to it for your wisdom and your guidance, for your truth and your counsel. We ask that you would give us depth of understanding and the courage of application, that we might live your word, not just read about it, not just speak about it, but that God, it would write itself on the fleshly tablets of our hearts that they might continually be a point of reference for us as we navigate this world and we seek to fulfill your purpose and your mission for our lives. And we pray this in the mighty name of Jesus. And everybody says, amen. If you're new to New Heights, we love the Bible. In fact, we love it so much, we do verse by verse preaching uh, through all the books of the Bible. And you know, if I had to summarize our, our philosophy on Sunday morning, it would be this. This is a quote from R.C. Sproul. He says, I think the greatest weakness in the church today is that almost no one believes that God invests his power in the Bible. Everyone is looking for power in a program, in a methodology, in a technique, in anything and everything, but that in which God has placed it, his word. He alone has the power to change lives for eternity, and that power is focused. We believe that here at New Heights Church. We don't believe you guys came to hear me, but you guys came to get a word from God. And so we take you to the word of God. When you want to hear a word from God, open the word of God. Amen? All right. So today we are in the book of Acts. We had a guest speaker last week, but two weeks ago we finished uh, Acts chapter 7. And so today we find ourselves in Acts chapter 4. We're going to be looking at four verses. And I want to talk to you today real briefly about physics. I also want you to know I got a C minus in physics. So <laughs> I'm gonna, and we, I'll be the first to tell you, this is hard stuff to understand. However, one thing I remember in physics was the irresistible force paradox. Have you guys heard of that? One, two, okay, good. So no matter what I say, I'm gonna be okay. I, I get it. Most of you in this room probably don't have the first clue what this refers to. So let me try to explain it to you. And again, I'm reminding you I got a C minus in physics. So you're going to get the most basic and a very, very simple explanation this, this morning. But the irresistible force paradox asks the question, what if there was a force that was so strong that nothing in the universe could ever stop it? What if there was an object that was so strong that nothing could ever move it? Let me put it another way. What would happen if an unstoppable force got into a fight with an immovable object? I want you to know I practice all my sermons, so I'll, I'll preach upstairs to nobody, but Asher this morning was in my room, 
and he heard me preaching this. And at this point, when I said this, what would happen if an unstoppable force got into a fight with an immovable object? I heard, it's happened. And so I turned around, I said, huh? He goes, Dad, that's happened. Okay, I saw the Marvel movie. (laughs) Now, so all of you Marvel fans... I know it happened on the movie screen, but this is my question. How many of you would think the unstoppable force would win? Okay, how many, how many of you think the immovable object would win? And how many of you could care less what would happen if these two things met? That's me, okay. All right, good. Well, the truth is that it's a trick question because physicists would tell you it's a logical impossibility. That's why it's called the irresistible force paradox. It's called the paradox because if there is such a thing as a force that cannot be stopped, then by uh, necessity, there's no such thing as an object that can't be moved. If If there is such a thing as an object that can't be moved, then there cannot be a force that's unstoppable. That's what makes it a paradox. Now, I want you to think about this for a moment in terms of everyday life. There's no such thing as a business that's too big to fail. If you don't believe me, just, just think back to some of the big businesses like Sears, right? All right, look at history, look what's happened to them. Uh, there's no empire that hasn't crumbled. There's no military force that cannot experience defeat. There's no force on planet Earth that will be around forever. There's no superpower that won't eventually lose its power. I read the last book of the Bible, and here's what it says. Every nation on planet Earth will one day cease to exist. But there is one force that is unstoppable and will continue to advance until the end of time, and that's the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the one force that cannot be stopped. It will advance until God's ready to call his people home. That's what the Bible is describing for us today in the book of Acts. We've been studying through the book of Acts, and today it takes this turn. And before, we've been looking at the original followers of Jesus. Now we start to look at a different person who becomes kind of the center of the story. And we, we're going to start to see how God's kingdom continues to advance today, even in the midst of great pressure and even terrible persecution. And I want you to understand that what we're reading today in the book of Acts is still happening in our world today. Okay? In fact, one of my favorite stories when I was a missionary uh, was about Pastor uh, Risto Kulajev. He was a congregational pastor in Bulgaria, and on January 9th, 1985, he was arrested and he was put into prison. His crime was that he preached in his church, even though he, the state had appointed another man, the pastor, that his congregation did not elect. His trial was a joke, it was a complete mockery of justice, and he was sentenced to eight months in prison. Now, listen to this. During his time in prison, he made Jesus known in every single way he could. His prison sentence became his pulpit. He never allowed his circumstances to stop his purpose. Did you hear me? He never allowed his circumstances to stop his purpose. Our circumstances change. Our mission does not. His situation changed, but his purpose did not. When he got out, he wrote this, and this is one of the most powerful quotes. He said, both prisoners and jailers asked many questions, and it turned out that we had a more fruitful ministry there than we could have expected in church. God was better served by our presence in prison than if we had been free. And there are thousands of stories like this happening all over the world today. I've shared before from this pulpit stories that Liz and I encountered in Thailand when we were with Pakistani refugees. We, we had the story of a brother who went in 
into, uh, he was, I, I don't want to call it jail because it's not, but a long-term detention center, I guess. And I told you about him planting churches inside there, and eventually they released him because they got fed up with him. <laughs> God uses the persecution and suffering of his people to spread the truth of the gospel and to bless the world. In fact, Jesus taught it in Luke. He, he taught it to his disciples in Luke 21, verse 12 through 13. It says, but for all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Today, I, I want you to be encouraged from our text. I want you to see that in Acts 8, 1 through 4, that God rules over the, thi- the, the sufferings of the church. In fact, he even causes them to spread spiritual power and the joy of faith in a very lost world. It's not his only way, but it does seem to be a frequent way. God spurs the church into missionary service by the suffering she endures. So don't be, don't be too quick to judge the setbacks and the defeats of the church. Because if you see things with the eyes of God, who, by the way, is, is the master strategist, I've been in a lot of meetings before, church meetings, missionary meetings, where we try to strategize how to reach the lost, and strategy is amazing, but I'll tell you who the best strategist is, the Holy Spirit. I mean, if we truly grasp grasp this, then what we see in every setback is the positioning for greater advance and a greater display of his wisdom, his power, and his love. So look with me at verse one. Here's what verse one's gonna show us, that God will take persecution and use it for mission. God will take persecution and use it for mission. You as a follower of Jesus Christ are a part of the only unstoppable force. So as long as Jesus is king, his kingdom will continue to advance until he comes back and claims his own. It's a powerful truth. I'm gonna say it one more time. (laughs) As long as Jesus is king, his kingdom will continue to advance until he comes back and claims his own and Jesus is always king. One thing that pops out as we look at chapter 8 is that the gospel has always, always been under attack. Always. Just let me summarize for you these first seven chapters of Acts. Because early on, it's Peter and John. They're persecuted because of their faith. The others follow, followers of Jesus are persecuted and flogged because they are advancing the gospel, because they're sharing the good news of Jesus. And by the time you get to chapter seven, there's one believer who's kind of singled out. His name is Stephen. Stephen comes under immense persecution. By the end of chapter seven, he's the first martyr, the first man to ever give his life for his faith in Jesus after that Easter morning, Easter Sunday morning. So I need you to see something here. The gospel from the very beginning has always been under attack, always. For those of you who may be new to church, And don't really understand this word gospel. What's pastor talking about? Let me make sure you know what I'm saying. The word gospel is the good news that Jesus has come, paid the price for our mistakes, even though you and I have been in rebellion against him. That's the gospel. And here's, he's purchased us back from our sin, and then he enlists us into his kingdom. And here's the best part. Knowing him is easy. At least for us. Because Jesus did everything necessary to reconcile us to him. Everything. Jesus did it. That means our part in all of this is simply believe that what the gospel says about him is true. And here's what the gospel says. He's a God who stands ready to accept us completely because of what Jesus has done for us. He's a God whose mercy and love for us knows no bounds. It stretches out towards us right now at this very moment. And let me make it very personal for some of you this morning. His mercy and his love stretches out towards you right now at this very moment. Amen. 
And once we believe and we begin to follow Jesus as our Lord, it means that our life will change radically because now he gets to call the shots. But we find obedience to him is, is a joy. It's a pleasure. Why? Because his presence is with us and it changes everything. So my question is, have you ever felt that love in your heart? Have you believed and embraced it personally? Have you, have you ever heard his voice in your soul saying, you, you are my child. I died for you. I've accepted you. If not, I'm praying that you open up your heart to him today. This morning, we're going to look at a, a vivid example of the cost that it's going to take for you and for me to be faithful followers of Jesus in the midst of a world that is still pretty messed up and jacked up. Sick with sin. That's what we're looking at in verse 1. This is what we've been talking about with the young adults every Thursday. Are you a fan or are you a follower? Because Jesus called you to be a follower. He doesn't care about fans. Look with me at verse 1. And Saul, and Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. And this is really important, and I'm going to bring your attention back to it when we get near the end of the sermon. But this is really, really important. In fact, if you, if you like to underline your Bible, and if you don't, then you need to grab one of our prayer journals, and you can underline the prayer journal. I want you to underline, accept the apostles. So here's what we need to know. Saul, he's a Pharisee who's living in Jerusalem at this time. And by the time we get to Acts chapter 8, verse 1, Saul becomes a Palestinian terrorist that will do uh, that will do anything that he can to completely stamp out Christianity. He takes part in the death of Stephen. In fact, he takes some sick, twisted pleasure in the death of C Stephen. He holds the robes. He holds the, the coats of the guys who are throwing rocks who ultimately kill Stephen in Acts chapter 7. And the reason why I'm telling you that he takes some sick pleasure in it is because the word approved. You see that right here, this, this word approved, Okay. It says that he was complicit. He was a part of it. He wanted this to happen. It's like when your friend falls down and does something clumsy and stumbles a little bit, it's natural for us to start laughing, right? It's pretty funny. Now, I love my wife to death, but there were one, we were at the shopping mall in Prescott, Arizona one time, and, and Liz just, she, she tripped and she fell. And she just, I mean, she fell head first, and I couldn't help it. My first reaction was to laugh. Husbands don't ever do that. You know, and as soon as she looked up and I could see the pain in her face, my laughing turned into complete terror because I knew I was in trouble. <laughs> it's not like that. It's not like when your friend falls down and does something clumsy and your natural reaction is to laugh. That's not what the word's implying. The word's implying you get tickled by watching your enemy fall down and stumble. Or in Stephen's case, watching your enemy who was an innocent man brutally murdered. Paul's taking pleasure in this. He's, he's enjoying this. He likes what's happening. He liked it. He didn't see it as murder. Why? Because religion had blinded his eyes. You know, sometimes religion can blind our eyes to certain things, certain truths. How do I know that? Well, he says that in 1 Timothy 1.13 when he's writing Timothy. He says, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. Religion is blinding Paul. And I want to tell you something today, and this is important, so listen to me. Consenting to evil is as bad as committing evil. 
Consenting to evil is as bad as committing evil. Saul was too refined to stand there and throw stones, but not too refined to hold the coats of those who did. His religion, no different than Cain's, whose convictions were too refined to slay a lamb, but not too refrained to kill Abel. Hear me out today. Religion without the Holy Spirit is the nastiest force in the world. Religion without Holy Spirit is the nastiest force in the world. Paul was so religious, but he did not have the Holy Spirit. I want to tell you something. I know we in the Assemblies of God love to focus on the evidence of somebody who has the Holy Spirit. The evidence of someone who's been baptized in the Holy Spirit. But I will tell you this, from Genesis all the way to Revelation, the evidence of somebody who truly has the Holy Spirit living within them is somebody who can promote peace, somebody who promotes unity, somebody who loves uh, their fellow brother and sister. So let me bring it real home. I don't really care if I have the altars full of people and they're getting all the Holy Spirit uh, EBGBs and goosebumps and then they go out there and they don't act like the Holy Spirit's living inside of them. And why am I saying this? Because the church is the easiest place to do a checklist and say, well, I'm, being re- I, I'm religious, I've had this happen, I've done this, and they'll go out and in the church, we can be in the atrium or the lobby of a church after a church service, and what, what can happen is somebody will start talking, did you hear about so-and-so? And they'll start tearing down their character. They become a character assassination. It's not always the pastor, but a lot of times it's geared maybe towards a leader or or a small group leader, anybody in the church, and all of a sudden they're just tearing down and, and they're, they've become this character assassination. And all of a sudden they're too refrained to say it to the person's face, but not too refrained, or, or somebody's listening is too refrained to say it. Maybe they're too, too refrained to actually take part in the conversation, but they're not too refrained to sit there and listen, smile and nod. You hear me? Sometimes religion can blind you. Paul was... Paul was religious, but he didn't have the Holy Spirit. And I'll tell you what, religion without the Holy Spirit is the nastiest force in the world. How do you know you have the Holy Spirit? Well, you're going to be full of love. You're going to be able to forgive those instead of holding on grudges. You're going to be able to say, nope, I'm not going to tear down this person's character. I'm going to speak truth. I'm going to speak love. I'm going to be someone that promotes unity. Do you hear me? That's a Pentecostal church. Let's be Pentecostal. Let's be Pentecostal. All right, so remember, up until now, in the book of Acts, all the ministry had taken place in Jerusalem. No one had moved out to Judea and Samaria. But do you remember what Jesus has said in Acts 1.8? You remember? That the coming of the Holy Spirit was to empower missions in Jerusalem and beyond, right? Do you remember that? You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Now here we are, Acts chapter 8, verse 1, and it uses exactly those two places in that order. They were scattered throughout the region of Judea and Samaria. So whether the church would have eventually come to her calling one day without persecution, I, I don't know. But the fact is that God is using persecution to move his people into the mission he had given them. In fact, that's what Acts 11.9 tells us. Look at what it says. It says, now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch. They're scattered all over. I see a really important lesson for us here today, okay? And it's not just that God is sovereign and turns our bumps in the road to victories, although that's a good lesson too. 
I see something else here, and, and that's this. And listen, sometimes comfort and ease and fortune, prosperity, safety, and even freedom can sometimes, and I emphasize sometimes, cause us as a church to do nothing, to keep us from moving, to be at a standstill. Sometimes the very things that we think are going to produce an, a, a type of energy and a, a creative investment when it comes to time and money in the cause of Christianity will sometimes instead produce the exact opposite. Instead, sometimes the church will experience weakness, um, They'll be lethargic, apathy, self-centered. Sometimes we see a principle that hard times, like persecution, often produces more personal, more, more personal investment, more prayer, more power, more open wallets than easy times. Isn't that something? Jesus hinted at this in his parable of the four soils, right? You remember that? Some fall away during persecution because they, they have no root. But do you remember the third soil in Mark 4, verse 19? Do you remember that? The cares of the world and the delight in riches and the desire for other things enter in and choke the word and it proves unfruitful. Now I understand that persecution is not, it's not fun for the church. I understand that it, it can cause serious problems, but so can prosperity. In fact, according to God's word, prosperity can sometimes, and I emphasize, I'm saying sometimes. So don't, don't put words in Pastor Justin's mouth today. Sometimes be more detrimental in accomplishing God's mission. I'm not telling you that we need to seek persecution. I'm not teaching that. Man, Pastor Enos and I at one of our district councils where we gathered with all the Ohio pastors, sat and listened to Pastor Rob Ketterling out of Minnesota talk about where our church is in America today. And he talked about how it's changed so dramatically from the time he was a child. And I could resonate with that, listening to him. In fact, when Liz and I served as missionaries, we felt that. Every time we'd come back to the States, it'd be like, this is a different country. It's just changing. And he, and he talked about how, look, it was easier. I, I wish America was like it was when I was a kid, that my, my children would grow up in the church like they did. If you give me the option between being a Christian in Iraq and being a Christian in America, I'm going to choose America, right? I don't want persecution. But he also said, but I ain't afraid of it because I know God can use persecution to serve mission. And I, I, I couldn't agree more. I, I understand per persecution is not fun, but again, according to God's, God's word, he's going he's to use persecution for, for mission, for purpose. And I'm not telling you that we need to seek it. I don't want it. I'm not teaching that. Here's what I'm stressing today, though. We should be very wary of prosperity and excessive ease and comfort and affluence. And we should not be disheartened but filled with hope when we are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Right? Because as Luke shows us here, God makes persecution serve the mission of the church. That's, that's the God that we serve. He's powerful God who holds all things in his hands. And sometimes, sometimes prosperity can be an obstacle to obedience. Jesus has called us to literally pick up our cross, deny ourselves, and follow him. You know, I love, Liz and I served as missionaries for 10 years. We, we love missionary stories. One of my favorite missionaries was James Calvert. If you don't know who that is, you've got to go research. He felt called with his wife and his family to go serve a cannibal tribe in the Fiji Islands. And so in these days, you had to, there's no plane, so he jumped on a boat, and this boat was taking him. So on this, on this 
course of like a, a week or two, whatever it was that he was on this boat, he got to know the captain really well. The captain started to like him, like his wife, like his kids. And so the captain knows the island that he's taking him to and begins to worry. Man, I really like James. He's a great guy. I don't think James knows what he's doing. I'm going to have to talk some sense into James because he is, he is headed to a place where he, he, he doesn't know what he's getting himself into. And so James Calvert, he boarded this ship that was bound for the Fiji Islands, and this is what the ship captain said to him when they arrived at the location. He tried to turn him back. He said, James, listen to me. You will lose your life and the lives of those with you if you go among, among such savages. And James replied, he said, we died before we came here. Let me tell you something, Calvert, James Calvert was thinking of Jesus' statement to his disciples. If anyone come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he summarized those verses. He said, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. And that's not usually a promise we Christians readily, <laughs> readily claim, Right? But when we realize that persecution is the norm for millions of believers around the world, we begin to break through the barrier to obedience called safety, comfort, and security. Some of us want all the benefits of following Jesus without any of the cost. We need to hear C.T. Studd when he says, if Christ be God and died for me, then no sacrifice can be too great for me to make for him. That's powerful, all right? Look with me at verse 2 through 3. We're going to see that God will grow the church despite obstacles. Verse 2. It says, Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. I want you to imagine that you are in Acts chapter 8. Verse 2, you've just seen one of your best friends who is an innocent man brutally murdered. You're hurting really bad. Frankly, you're confused because what you're thinking to yourself is, God, I don't get it. Many of us have been there, right? God, I don't get it. I was there. I, I still remember being in the hospital room, the waiting room, when they came out and said, your dad has an aggressive brain tumor and he's going to die. It was just nine months before that that we had sold our home and said yes to missions. I don't get it, God. Why? Why? Stephen did exactly what you told him to do. He didn't do anything wrong. He was an innocent man. God, you're supposed to be big enough to handle stuff like this. So where were you? Where were you? Because it kind of feels like you fell asleep at the wheel. Have you guys ever felt like that? It's okay. We're not going to judge you. I've, I've been there. There have been times in my life where I have felt like, God, you fell asleep at the wheel. Do you not know what just happened to Stephen? God, do you not know what's happening to us? Do you even care what's going on right now? These are, these are normal questions. They're the kind of questions we ask when life really starts to hurt, when we experience pain in our life. And I'm going to tell you again, it's normal to ask those questions. God, do you know? God, do you care? In Acts chapter 8, it goes from bad to worse. By the time you get to verse 3, Saul, Saul is now so militant, so ready to stamp out Christianity that he's going to house to house. He's looking for everybody in the room who claims faith in Jesus. If he can't kill them, he's going to drag them to prison. And I want you to see something in this text. What we see as setbacks, the Lord uses for advance. 
I want you to see this, okay? What we see as setbacks, the Lord uses for advance. You want to know how violent this persecution is? The word ravage. The word ravage is a word that you would use 2,000 years ago to describe what a lion does to an antelope when it catches it. Okay, National Geographic, it's not pretty. We've all seen it. It's my favorite week when they show the lions of Africa. That lion will tear apart that antelope. This is the word that they're using. Paul is ravaging the church. Saul's doing whatever he can to rip the church apart, to really stamp out Christianity at its very beginnings. And God's church is under immense attack right now, even today. Sometimes it's pain, sometimes it's pressure, sometimes it's persecution, sometimes all of those things can come on God's people just because they're doing what the Bible says you and I are supposed to be doing. When those times happens, it, it, it can feel like, God, you don't know, or God, God you don't care. Sometimes the problems are, are, are from outside the church, and, and you've got maniacs coming and trying to do whatever it takes to stop the church and stop the, the gospel from spreading. But sometimes those problems come from inside the church. Nothing breaks my heart more as a pastor when, when there's stuff from inside the church that's tearing it apart. It's one thing when it comes from out there. When we got people inside the church that are working really hard to tear apart the church, it breaks my heart. Now, please think in these terms with me. For those, for those early Christians, it just felt like their future was, is over with. For most of them, it probably felt like I've just lost all my friends. My family and I are on the run. I've just lost everything. I've got no future. I've got no family. I have no friends, no community. And if you were an early Christian, the only thing that you had to hang on to at this point was Jesus. That's it. You may have just lost everything that you had ever hoped for, all your dreams gone in an instant, but the early church knew something. They had not lost their king. They knew that Jesus knew what was going on. He cared. He was going with them in the midst of great problems, in the midst of severe persecution. Jesus was with them. Jesus never promised us that life was going to be easy, but he did make the promise he would always be with us. Do you understand that? It's like when I was a little kid and I, I struggled so much with fear. And now, now my 11-year-old my struggles with some of the same stuff. I was so afraid. I could not sleep in my room when I was six or seven years old. Could not sleep in my room unless my dad would come in there. And I remember uh, I was convinced that there was this monster under my bed because I watched some stupid goosebumps. Be careful what your kids watch because you've got to be careful. Monitor what your kids are watching. I, I don't think I watched it. I read some book in the, in the school library. It terrified me. So I was convinced that there was this monster living under my bed. And I could not sleep unless my dad came in there with me. And it got really old. And I remember one night my dad was trying to sneak out because he thought I was asleep. And I said, Dad, I'm still up. I'm still up. I'm still up. And he said, okay, I don't get it. He said, Justin, why are you so scared if I'm in here, because you, if you're convinced there's a monster under the bed, which there really isn't, but you're convinced there is, the monster's still under the bed if I'm here with you. Why, why you I mean, if that monster comes out, he's going he's gonna to devour both you and me. Not a good thing to say, Dad. <laughs> but you know what I told my dad? I said, no, I, I know he's still under there, but if he comes out and I grabbed his hand, I said, I've got you. You're with me, so we can, I'll face him, but I need to be with you. Well, Jesus never promised the monsters would leave. <laughs> he just promised us he'd be with us, and we can face anything when we're with Jesus, right? 
Now, God can grow his church even in the most difficult circumstances. Because where we see a detour from the obvious route, the Lord has plotted out a path to the growth of his people and the glory of his son. Look with me at verse 4. It says, Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. My two favorite verses in all of the book of Acts is verse 1, and I'll talk about in a minute, and this, and this verse. This is one of the most powerful verses in the entire book of Acts. Again, if you, if you like underlining, underline verse 4. I think it's just one of the most powerful verses in all the book. Because what we read here explains why the church becomes this unstoppable force. By the end of verse 3, it could have ceased to exist at that moment, right in its infancy. It could have. But by the time you get to verse 4, this gospel army is now spreading all over the globe, taking the message of Jesus with them everywhere that they go. Everywhere. And I want, I want to bring your attention back to verse 1 because I said I would. And it says, And Saul approved of the execution, and there arose on that day great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Except the apostles. Why include that detail? Well, Luke doesn't tell you what the apostles did when they stayed. So the only reason he would include the detail is to put the focus on what those who left did. Listen to me. This is the most important verse. They carried the gospel outside of Jerusalem. The first time the gospel expanded beyond Jerusalem, it was carried out in the mouths of normal, regular people. And I emphasize, it was not the apostles. Think about this for a moment. Want to know what I think? I think that's, this is the Holy Spirit's sign for how the Great Commission is going to be accomplished. The church grows not by the preaching of a few anointed apostles, but when every believer is filled with the Spirit and testifies to the gospel in the streets. That is how the Great Commission is going to be accomplished. It is going to be accomplished through you. Through you, not just a few pastors and missionaries. Through you, you're going to accomplish the Great Commission. Now, sometimes God takes you into these places through a divine call. You feel called to move to a particular city, enter a certain career field, or move into a specific neighborhood. Sometimes he moves you there through normal life circumstances. In, in, the, in the case of these people, it, it's, it was persecution. But it could be simply that this is where God led you. you. You know, you're not here in Cincinnati by accident. You're not in Cincinnati by accident. God brought you here. You're not sitting in a chair at New Heights Church on accident. God brought you here. God has this divine plan for your life, and he wants to use you. Man, we have a lot of you whose jobs naturally take you into the world. I told you the story of my father so many times. He was a jack of all trades. He was literally a police officer turned a lawyer, turned pastor, turned missionary. And I remember my dad many times when he was pastoring would tell my mom, there's sometimes I miss being a cop. Sometimes I miss being a police officer because I used to be able to lead so many people to Jesus. I was, I was with the people all the time. I was with lost people. I said, well, dad, that's not really fair because you had them handcuffed in the back of your seat. And <laughs> I think anybody's going to be willing to listen to anything at that point but he said I used to lead so many people to Jesus as a police officer and sometimes as a, a pastor I just I don't get to do that as much now he knew he was called to being a pastor but but he he was making a valid point that you guys 
Your jobs take you in the world every single day. You're surrounded by lost people. And I want you to see that what these ordinary people in our text are doing here is exactly what Jesus says the church is supposed to do in Matthew 28. 28, 19, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded for you. And behold, I am with you always to the very end of the age. Most of the time, we only hear about this passage when it's a missionary service. But this is for everyone. This is for everyone who claims that Jesus is their, is their Lord and Savior. He says, as you are going to work, as you're going to the gym, as you're going to the grocery store, make disciples. The mission of God will be accomplished through ordinary people taking their faith with them every step of the way. In our text today, the gospel is exploding to the edges of the earth, and now it's no longer in Jerusalem, no longer that you had to go to Jerusalem to hear the message. Now it's going all over Judea. Now it's going to the neighboring country of Samaria, and pretty soon it would make its way to North America and to Cincinnati, Ohio, and you and I are sitting here today because it did. We are sitting here today because of Acts chapter 8, verse 4. God sometimes, is, sometimes uses great pressure to advance his kingdom. He sometimes uses great power or great persecution to rub off the edges and to shape and sharpen what he's calling his people to do. God takes immense pressure on a piece of coal and he turns it into a diamond. He turns immense heat up under gold and he refines it and makes it pure. It's that heat of the fire. It's the pressure that makes the thing beautiful. That makes the thing powerful. That's what you have here today in Acts chapter 8. You have the gospel message that's going all over the globe. And it's unlike anything people have ever heard before. It's unlike any religion on the planet. God's plan for reaching the world, hear me out. God's plan for reaching the world involves raising up and sending out ordinary people in the power of the Holy Spirit. I hope, you, I hope you see this. You know, one of the, one of the greatest, greatest things I ever experienced as a missionary serving with Liz all those years in Thailand. All right, well, first, we went to India. That was my, my dream. I thought I would live and die in India and be buried there. God had a different plan. Six months later, we found ourselves in Bangkok, Thailand. And there was a man who I didn't always agree with everything he said. His name was John Wirachai, the superintendent of the Assemblies of God. And he kind of became a friend to Liz and I. He knew my uncle in Singapore. And so I think my uncle had reached out and said, will you kind of reach out to Justin and Liz there? Because, you know, they're kind of special to us. So he did. And he poured in. And I, in the first six months getting to know him, there were so many things that I'd be like, I just don't. I don't agree with this or don't agree with that, but uh, I learned so much from him. How, do you, how many of you guys know you can actually learn, it's okay if you disagree with a fellow brother or, or sister in Jesus? You know that? <laughs> Amen. So one of the things I remember, in, in my very first meeting with him, I said, hey, John Wirchai, can you just tell me all your years working with the Assemblies of God, all the missionaries you've worked with, can you tell me some of the missionaries that have made the biggest impact on Thailand? And he listed about five names, and none of them were American, and I didn't, I didn't recognize any of their names. And I said, oh, were they sent out with another country with the assemblies? He goes, no, they weren't sent out with any sending organization. And I said, oh, but I, I'm of all the missionaries you worked with, he said, they are missionaries. And I said, oh, okay. Three Filipinos, two, two men from the Netherlands. 
business, all business, came to Thailand, used their skill that God had given them because they believed Thailand needed Jesus and they were going to use their skill and they wanted to be planted right there in the middle of uh, Bangkok, the, the capital city, the, the biggest city. I think it's the capital. Uh, it's the biggest city. I can say that. And, and, they were, and he said they, they did that. He said, well, what, what church did they attend in the Thai church? They didn't attend a Thai church. They attended the church I want you to work at, the international church. And I said, okay. And he goes, and I'll tell you this. He said, in all my years, these five missionaries, I've met more ties that have come to Jesus from these business people who have come than I have anybody else, even in my own church. I said, I have businessmen in my church today that are Thai, that were Buddhists, that gave their life to Jesus because of these five men. And these businessmen now came into my church, and Ramyun, which was his church, wouldn't exist if it wasn't for these five men. They don't go to my church. They go to the international church, but they're missionaries here. They're making their life count. They're reaching out to people. They're working with Thais every day. They speak Thai better than most missionaries do, and they're making a difference. And it really challenged me to see what missions really is. I mean, God has called everybody. Every single person has a call. If you profess Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you have a call to make disciples. You have a call to make disciples. And some of you are going to literally say, man, you hear this and you're like, I don't, I feel, man, I want to go to where a, a country that's unreached. I want to make a difference. I'm, I'm a teacher. Maybe I can go teach English as a second language and God's going to call you up and go. Some of you aren't going to get on a plane. You don't have to go. We've got unreached people groups just down the road, by the way. We have one of the biggest Nepalese populations in, in the county that our church is in. One of the biggest in all the United States. Just so you know, Nepalese people aren't Christian. Most of them aren't. Most of them are Buddhist or Hindu. Right down the street from me. Did you hear that? Right down the street. Are our eyes open to that people group? Are we seeing it? What are we doing as a church to reach those people groups? Some of you guys even work with these people from these people groups. They work in your businesses. You're with them every day. I hope you're seeing this. I hope, I hope you're seeing God uses ordinary people in, in the story of Stephen's martyrdom. Even in the midst of tragic injustice and terrible persecution, God's mission and his purpose is accomplished. Now I want you to think about this as we close today and the worship team comes back up. Somehow this group of disorganized, ragtag, blue-collar, backwards people transformed an empire. Rome was a place of incredible power. The ruins that have survived 2,000 years point to this incredible civilization. And yet in less than 300 years, the whole empire had by, by and large turned its back on its heritage and converted to Christianity. Now today... Let me, let me say, that would be like a group of uneducated nomads outside of Delhi, India, starting a new religion that within 300 years has swept over most of North America and Europe. The birth of the church is a miracle. It's miraculous. And in no way can it be explained apart from the power of the Holy Spirit. In the people he used, they were ordinary people like Stephen and those who are scattered. They were people who believed Jesus was real, took him at his word. This is what you need if you're going to be used by God. I look around now, and we as a church, I, I, I know we've got our problems, I know. But are we any less than they are? Can't we see this in our generation? Did you know historians estimate the total number of Christians at the end of the first century to be about 7,500? That's it. Do you hear me? 7,500. Yet by AD 300, that 7,500 had multiplied so that nearly half of the population of the Roman world had confessed faith in Jesus. Don't we want to see that happen again? <laughs> What's stopping us? If God used ordinary, messed up people in the first century, can't, can't he use us too? 
right? He can use us. You need to understand God wants to use you. The Holy Spirit wants to fill you. You need to be Jesus to other people. Again, Acts 8.1 is the most important verse in the account because it tells who was involved in the advance of the gospel. While the apostles remained in Jerusalem, the believers who were scattered by the persecution were used to carry the gospel to new places. This was the turning point in the early church. And Luke makes it really clear that the, the apostles weren't involved. From that point on, it's ordinary people who are going to be at the forefront of the gospel movement. Ordinary believers have always been the tip of the gospel spear. I want to encourage you to see your skills as a tool for the spread of the gospel. The knowledge and skill you use for your livelihood can create opportunities for gospel witness, even in difficult places around the world. To follow Jesus means whatever you do well, do it well to the glory of God. And then do it somewhere strategic for the mission of God, right? The way that God advances his kingdom is through the power of the Holy Spirit and no one and nothing can stop this force. It's not through violence and, and murder. It's not the approach Saul took, stamping out Christianity. In fact, the very, the approach, that approach backfired. Christians explode all over the face of the known world, taking their faith with them. Many other places hear the gospel for the first time because those Christians were under immense persecution. God wants to use you. I've always said we are going to be a sending church. Now, I've said things that have gotten me trouble with missionaries for the last 10 years, calling everybody a missionary. I, I call everybody a disciple maker. You are all called to make disciples. You do not need to go jump on a plane unless God is calling you to do it. If God is calling you to do it, don't stoop to do anything else. Get on that plane and go serve him wherever he's calling you to go. And the Holy Spirit's the best strategist. He'll send you, he'll send, he might send you to an unreached country in the world. He might send you to a country where the church is exploding. Holy Spirit is the one that leads us and guides us. If the book of Acts teaches us anything, it's that. Holy Spirit's the best strategist. But I'll tell you what, a lot of you are right where God wants you to be. <laughs> right here at New Heights Church, right here in this new season. Look around you. I, I, I can't tell you how excited I am about the growth of our church, about what's happening. And I'm not just talking numeric growth, although that, that is happening. We are seeing numerical growth, but you know what's more important than that? I'm getting testimony after testimony after testimony, and we're starting to compile a video for you so you can see this, of all of the lives that are being changed and tra transformed through the power of the gospel. That's what I'm most excited about. I'm really excited that just three months ago we had five to seven young adults and now we've got 30 young adults in our group. 30 young adults, some of them found Jesus within just the last year. I love it. I love it that some of them are feeling called into ministry, filling out applications to go into Bible college and having to come to me and saying, hey, it's asking me about this stuff. I've only been saved eight months, so some of the stuff I did, I said, good, that's okay, tell them. You've been saved eight months. Jesus radically saved you from that lifestyle. It's okay, share your testimony. God is doing something in the lives of the people that are coming here. I can't tell you how many people I say, how did you hear about us? Oh, I was just drawn in by the Holy Spirit. I saw the sign off the road when I was driving by and the Holy Spirit just drew me. God's doing something. You guys have been brought here for a reason and a purpose. But I'm telling you, you gotta get off. Don't just be a bench warmer. 
Don't just warm up the pew on Sunday morning. The best ministry takes place outside those doors, and he does it by filling us with his Holy Spirit. So I don't care how Pentecostal we are in here if we can't be Pentecostal out there. The best ministry takes place Monday through Friday, and that's what I want to see. I'm looking out, and I see dentists, lawyers, teachers, coaches. I want you to go out there full of the Holy Spirit and make a difference in people's life. I don't want God to have to do something to scatter us. I want us to be willing to go, right? So what we're going to do is we're going to close in prayer. We're going to do what we always do. We want to give an opportunity for you to respond to what the Holy Spirit's doing. That means our worship team is back up on stage, and they're going to sing a few songs. If you need to go, as soon as I close in prayer, you are officially dismissed, but our altars are open if you want to just pursue God and let the Holy Spirit do something. Some of you need a process what the Holy Spirit is speaking to you about at this very moment. We want to do that. So, Father God, we love you. We praise you. We worship you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for what you're doing at New Heights. Thank you for... Uh, the fact that our church, thank you that we're not being persecuted, but I pray that that comfort and ease and prosperity would never hinder our obedience to you, that we'd be willing, just like that missionary said, we died a long time ago. So whatever it is God's asking us to do, we don't care the consequences. So we died a long time ago. We died when we said yes to Jesus. By dying, we experienced a life that's greater than anything we could have ever imagined or hoped. God, I pray through the power of the Holy Spirit right now that you begin to work on the hearts and the minds of everybody here today. God, you're gonna give birth to new ministries today in the next few minutes. You're gonna speak into lives and hearts. You're gonna do, redirect steps and some are gonna be encouraged and they're gonna hear they're right where they're supposed to be. But you're gonna open their eyes spiritually so they can see the lost people around them. Open our eyes, we, we can know our neighbors they're from a different country and speak a different language. Open our eyes spiritually to, to see them. See the world in the places that you've strategically placed us. And I pray this power of the Holy Spirit.